Welcome to Fast Talk, the Velo News podcast and everything you need to know to ride like a pro. Hello and welcome to Fast Talk. I'm your host, Chris Case, managing editor of Velo News, joined as always by a guy who plays immunologist in his spare time, Coach Trevor Connor. Recovery, recovery, recovery. You've heard us talk about it before. You've heard a lot of our guests preach about its importance. We've emphasized again and again how one of the biggest mistakes athletes make is to not get enough recovery. Well, now we're going to confuse you a bit. The ultimate goal of training is, of course, to adapt. And there's a critical distinction between adaptation and recovery. They're not the same thing. In fact, sometimes what helps one hurts the other. Recovery is about doing what you can so the legs are ready for your next workout. Adaptation is about the body repairing the damage caused by training. If the training provides enough stress, it will repair the system to come back stronger. But what's good for that repair process may have you feeling less than perfect on the bike the next day. Today, we're going to dive into this important difference and focus on adaptations, what causes them and how to aid them. We'll talk about, first, the difference between recovery and adaptation. Second, how the immune system is intimately involved in both and why we've come to the realization in recent years that reducing inflammation can be counterproductive. Next, we'll talk about the three stages of repair. Remember that training does damage. We're weaker after hard rides. It's during the repair process that we get stronger and the immune system is the repairman here. Much like the local cable guy, the immune system is going to work at its own pace regardless of what you do or say. Next, we discuss how there's a delicate balance between damage and repair, and when you get out of balance by doing too much training, it starts a vicious cycle that prevents further adaptations and leads to burnout. We'll talk with George Bennett, who put in a fantastic Tour de France performance, helping his GC leader, Stephen Kreiswick, land on the podium. George discusses what he does to aid adaptations. Finally, we'll finish with a conversation about the things that do help adaptations and the things that hurt them, despite the fact that a lot of endurance athletes still do them. Our primary guest today is George Bennett, member of the Yumbo Visma World Tour team. George joins us for part of the episode. We spared a rider of his caliber from having to sit through Trevor's initial lecture on immunology. We hope that you will. It's fascinating stuff. We also hear from Joe Friel, author of The Cyclist Training Bible. In the most recent edition of his book, Joe makes the important distinction between recovery and adaptation. Next, we talk with Brent Bookwalter of Mitchelton Scott. In order to adapt, we have to first do damage. Brent talks with us about the important balance between damage and repair. As an aside, don't forget his charity ride, The Bookwalter Binge, is coming up soon. Then we catch up with Boulder-based coach extraordinaire, one of our favorite guests, Colby Pierce. And finally, we talk with Paolo Saldana, the owner of PowerWatts. Paolo talks about ways to find the right amount of damage and why we should rethink taking antioxidants. One quick note, we recorded the part of the episode with George right after we had moved offices and were setting up our new studio. There were still some bugs in the system at the time. We apologize for any strange sounds you might hear. And with that, let's make you fast. This is a special episode brought to you by Normatech. We thank them for bringing a Normatech-sponsored athlete of George's caliber onto the show. 
Several years ago, Coach Connor did a deep dive into the research on both recovery and adaptations and how the immune system is involved. That research really changed his opinion. The conclusion he made was that we mostly should get out of the way of our bodies or find tools that aid the adaptation process. The thing that consistently showed benefits, as we'll explain in this episode, is compression, which includes massage, foam rolling, and pneumatic devices like Normatec. It was because of that research that we reached out to Normatec to be part of FastDoc. There are many pneumatic compression devices, but Normatec's patented compression technology delivers the most advanced recovery for your body. It compresses in stages, working with the direction of your blood flow. We've seen pros like Tom Scoonge, Taylor Finney, Rowan Dennis using the Normatec boots. Normatec's recovery massage increases circulation, rejuvenates muscles, and reduces soreness so you can train harder and race faster. Well, I know you're looking forward to this one, Trevor, because we start off with an atomic nuclear nerd bomb. We've actually had a couple episodes now where we've been like, this is the nerdiest bomb Trevor's ever going to do. And we just keep one-upping ourselves. You keep one-upping yourself. We are talking about immunology today. This is as nerdy in the physiology world as you can get. And my job, once again, to control you. Yeah, I came in, I showed Chris all my notes, and then Chris was like, yeah, no, I'm going to stop you. (laughs) And you gave me permission to do what? To stop me. (laughs) (laughs) And tell you to do what? Don't be a dork. Was that (laughs) your wording? (laughs) You said tell you to shut up if I needed you to, if I needed to. Yes. Okay. So when Chris tells me to shut up, he is not being a jerk. This is, he has full permission. I have permission. Yes. Can't wait. So, t- Trevor, there's the, there's this overarching theme to this episode. Let's get right into it. Uh, the difference between recovery and adaptation. Yeah, and I'm going to first, uh, full disclosure, full credit. This was a conversation we had with Joe Friel. Uh, Joe Friel actually has this in the newest edition of the Cyclist Training Bible. A whole chapter about this. A whole chapter. It's at the back, and and we'll you know we're going to put in an excerpt in this show where he talks about why it's at the back and the difference. But I definitely want to give him the credit that he really pointed out there is a difference between these two. Recovery and adaptation are not the same thing. Recovery is what you're trying to do if you just. Let's say you're in a race. You had a really hard ride and it's a stage race. You got to be ready for the next day. Recovery focuses on getting you ready so that you can go hard again the next day. Adaptation is about you've done a bunch of training. Now you want that to turn into improved strength. And I think we often see those two things as the same thing. But as we're going to show in this episode, they're not quite the same thing. And actually, what aids one might actually hurt the other. Right. It's an interesting balance between the two of them. Right. Or it's not even a balance. It's a, it's just this fine line distinction that should be made between them. And just sorry to, to butt in here, but recovery is not exclusive to the racing world and adaptation is more exclusive to the training world, but not always. Right. You know, people will still say, you go do a hard training ride and you go, well, I need to recover. How do I get ready? Certainly when you're doing a hard training block, you want to be recovered so you can go hard the next day. 
a really interesting thing that's still very new in the research when you're looking at this difference between recovery and adaptations is I read a couple studies that showed that recovery may be central where adaptation is peripheral. Mm. So what I mean by that is when you're talking about periphery, you're talking about the muscles, the limbs. When you're talking about central, you're talking about the nervous system. And there were some really interesting studies that showed that recovery, your ability to go you know, at your maximal wattage again as soon as possible, actually didn't correlate very well with what was going on at the muscle level. But it did correlate well with uh, at EMG activity and found that actually when you really do some damage, when you really hurt yourself, like you do a hard race, after that, you essentially get this neural su suppression. Mm. And that recovery correlated very well with the return of full EMG activity. And for those who don't know, what's EMG? So EMG is just like measuring the, the, the electrical activity. So focusing on the muscles, when you say, I need to recover and, and get in the ice bath or doing all these things at the muscle level to get you ready for the next day, what these studies are saying is that might not be fully looking at the right thing. Mm -hmm. Adaptation, you've done some muscle damage. Now those muscles need to be repaired. That's a little more peripheral. Mm -hmm. And again, that's just an idea. That's some pretty recent research. That's certainly not conclusive. I'm, certainly it's not black and white. But it is another interesting distinction between adaptation and recovery. We really have to give credit to Joe Friel for raising this question of adaptation versus recovery. That's the theme of this entire podcast, but here's five minutes of Joe giving a great summary. Late in the book, I talk about, I actually kind of throw in a, a curveball there based on what I, we just, I just talked about, and that was the discussion about recovery versus adaptation in that uh, they're not the same thing, and that sometimes it's better for an athlete to be very open-ended about their about the recovery process, which now being taken to mean to include adaptation. And sometimes plans don't do that. Sometimes athletes don't know how they're going to feel when they get to a certain point in the season. They, just have, they haven't experienced what they're planning to do. And when they get there, they discover the load is much greater than they thought it was going to be. Now what do they do? Do they continue on? Do they press ahead with the same plan? Or do they make changes to it because of what they're experiencing? And my point in, this, in that later chapter where I talk about recovery and adaptation is that the most important thing is adaptation. It's not recovery. The most important thing is adaptation. That, that's the reason why we train is to adapt. If you didn't adapt, what the hell would be the reason for going out there and doing workouts? And, and to, to, express, to explain that, for example, uh, uh, the difference between a recovery and adaptation, there's lots of research showing that hot and cold alternating inversions or baths speed up recovery. There's not a single research study that shows it speeds up adaptation. So right. you may feel like you're recovered because you've done certain things. You've used, you've got a massage or you've done all these things that we, we all know about, but that doesn't mean you're adapted. Your body, we don't know right now, we don't know of any way to speed up the adaptive process. It's a biological phenomenon, which, which is really beyond what we know about sports science right now, but it's at the heart of what we're talking about here. And so the issue is that you've got to be able to differentiate these two terms, recovery and adaptation, and not be focused just on recovery, but also realize you've got to give your body a chance to, to adapt. And so what does that mean? Well, that means especially sleep, um, which is when hormones kick in and, and the body actually goes through the process 
of becoming stronger, if you will. And so even though I've talked about having a plan, I'm now toward the end of the book talking about how you've got to be ready to deviate from that plan because of the need to, um, to adapt as opposed to simply recover. So I tried to, you know, I tried to sneak that in toward the end because I wanted the person, the athlete, the reader to understand that all these other things are important, but this now becomes one of the most important things you have to also give consideration to. How are you adapting? So I actually wrote an article a couple of years ago on recovery modalities. I think it's probably the most boring article I ever wrote because <laughs> you look at the most recent research and really where they seem to be heading is the, these things that make you feel better, like ice baths and ibuprofen and, and a lot of these things people use to recover, they, they block the inflammation, which is what causes the pain. So you feel better. But we actually need that inflammation for the adaptation. So they show yeah, that you know, icing and these things can actually slow down uh, the adaptation process. That's and, right. and basically, the, the gist of my whole article was get out of your body's way. Let it, let it do its thing. Yeah, you really can't. You can't rush adaptation. It's got a process it has to go through. We can screw it up more, more easily than we can, uh, can, we, we can rush it. So it, it's a huge challenge right now. It's really on the, on the cutting edge, I would say, of sports science is what's adaptation all about and, you know, how, how can we make sure we're doing it correctly. That's, that's on the leading edge of where we are right now. And I, I by no means have the answer to that question. I'm just posing a, another issue for the athlete to consider that adaptation is every bit as important as recovery is, in fact, much more so. And it's the reason we do all this training. And your point is well taken that ibuprofen and even even vitamins have been shown to to screw up the adaptive process. And so we sometimes get in our own way by doing things like that because we think it's going to be good for us. And it has just the opposite effect on us. Is that yeah. is that why um, the, the fact that this is there's a lot of uh, unknowns here about adaptation is it's uh, an emerging component to to training. Is that why it ended up so far back in the book? It, it sounds like you're well aware of its importance to the overall process of, of training, but it sounds like you, you yes. know, you use the word sn- snuck it in at the end. It sounds that contradicts itself a little bit. Yes. Yeah, I, I say I snuck it in because I, I, uh, I really can't give answers. I can only ask questions when it comes to that, that issue. And rather than confuse people during the process of how do you decide what periodization plan is best for you, which is what a chapter early in the book is, is all about. And muddy the waters within that chapter, I decided to hold on to till late in the book where I could discuss it as a, a topic all of its own within the context of the of the table of contents I created back in 1996. And so that's how it got there. It would have been confusing, I think, to, to put it in right in with all the other stuff on periodization. But at some point, the issue needed to be raised. Mm-hmm. Let's get back to the show and talk about the repair process that's so critical to adaptations. Okay, I think it's it's probably helpful for you to explain this process so that we have an understanding of the, the different components of the process, as well as how they work and how they can be hindered by certain things that people might do. So we've talked about this a bunch of times on the show, and it's really important to remember when throughout this, the rest of this conversation, that training does damage. When you go out and do some really hard intervals, you don't come back from those intervals stronger. You actually come back from those intervals weaker. 
you've done, you, there, there's muscle tearing. There's a lot of things that are going on that are actually damaging your body. Your body then tries to repair that damage. And if you do sufficient damage, your body says, okay, I don't like this. I don't like how much damage you've done. So not only am I going to repair that damage, I'm actually going to repair you stronger and more durable so that the next time you put me through this, I can handle it. That's basically what training is all about. So when we're talking about adaptations, getting stronger, we're really talking about that repair process. So you're going to hear me use adaptations and repair pretty interchangeably. Another really neat concept here, I always, my, my thesis advisor, Dr. Lauren Cordain, this is one of his favorite expressions uh, that I think really applies to this, is he says, nature never gives up a good idea. And one of the examples that he's actually been looking into lately that, that I really love is melatonin. Melatonin was invented by the, oh, you say invented, evolved. Yeah, you can't say By, invented, by really. the first aerobic cells soon after the earth developed a, a, an atmosphere uh, to deal with all the damage from oxidative metabolism. So it was our first antioxidant. Hmm. Uh, and that's what it was designed for. But nature then said, boy, this is really cool. I like this melatonin thing. We can use it for a lot of other things. So now it regulates sleep. It has actually a lot of roles in our body. So nature is great when we evolve something, invent something, whatever you want to call it, at saying, this is pretty cool. Let's see how we can use this. Our immune system is probably one of the most advanced systems in our body. It is highly energy demanding. So when you have something that, 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 that's that important a part of your body that requires that much energy, nature isn't going to say, well, let's just use it for one thing. Mm -hmm. They're just going to say, let's figure out how many things we can use it for. So Maximize the return. Maximize the return, exactly. So we always think of our immune system. You get sick, the immune system jumps in and, and takes care of things. Immune system does a lot more than that. And one of the other things it does is repair. Mm -hmm. So the immune system is actually responsible for making us stronger. It is responsible for our adaptations, which to me is really, really cool. And that's something that was for a long time misunderstood because we knew that when you go out and do training, when you do a hard raise, you get inflammation. And everybody went, well, inflammation is what you get when you get sick. So that's a bad thing. We don't want inflammation. So a lot of the old research on recovery, on training adaptations, focused on the inflammation, but focused on it as a bad thing. You want to reduce inflammation. So, so take your, your anti-inflammatories, do icing, anything you can to reduce that inflammation. That has been flipped. And that's what we're going to get into because that inflammation is necessary. Inflammation is just basically the immune system being activated. It's obviously, I'm going to say this now so Chris doesn't tell me to shut up. <laughs> but when we're talking about the immune system, everything I'm talking about from this point forward is going to be a dramatic simplification because you can take any little bit about the immune system and spend hours mm -hmm. diving into how complex it is. So all this is simplification. So I'm going to start with my first big simplification. When you are talking about inflammation, you are basically just talking about the activation of the immune system. So if the immune system is responsible for, for muscle repair, we need inflammation. You don't want to stop it. And that's really important when you're thinking about recovery. That's really important also when you're thinking about adaptations. And there have been studies where they 
took people, took athletes, had one, had both groups do the same amount of training. One group took a, an anti-inflammatory afterwards. The other group didn't. And you were seeing, I think in one study, you saw 50% less gains in the group that was taking the anti-inflammatory. Wow. It's, it's pretty dramatic. That is very dramatic. So this repair process, there are, are two key players in it, two key immune cells. You have your macrophages and you have your neutrophils. And if you remember your high school biology, those two cells are two of the key players in what's called your innate immune system. Mm. The immune system that doesn't adapt to particular viruses is just the immune system that's your first responder. It comes in. Think of it, every time I learned about immunology, we talked about it like an army, and each of the different types of immune cells had a, was equivalent to a different type of soldier. Mm. And so your macrophages and your neutrophils are kind of your, your scouts. They're the first ones there to check out what's going on, and they're going to mount the initial defense while the real army gets ready and, and moves in, which is your adaptive immune system. When you're dealing with a virus, that's what's happening. But when you're talking about muscle repair, it's really just that innate immune system that comes in and, and does the work. Um, there are three stages to this repair process, and I'm just going to run through them really quickly. Please do. <laughs> yes. Just you haven't kidding. told me to shut up yet. Well, you've been you've been pretty succinct so far. Thank you. I appreciate this. You should see the I length mean, of the notes I'm this is, skimming through this right now. This is me. I've, I'm used to this. So some people out there might be snoring at this point. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, that's We'll get some right. feedback. That's all right. <laughs> my goal is to take all those things that you used to learn in high school and go, my God, that's so boring. And be like, wow, I never knew it could be interesting. At least that's, that's, that's how I go to sleep at night. <laughs> Some people take melatonin supplements to go to sleep at night. Other people listen to fast talk to go to sleep at there night. There you go. I just play recordings <laughs> with myself. <laughs> kind of just go, am I that? Oh, <laughs> I'm out cold. <laughs> uh that's actually not how I go to sleep. Believe it or not, I actually go to sleep watching action movies. I went to sleep last night watching True, uh, was it True Lies? True Lies. Get yeah. down, Dana. Yeah. Get down. I don't know why that puts me to sleep, but yeah, action movies. Mm. I love them. That's an old one. How did you land upon that? I love that movie. You love that I've movie. Had that movie. <laughs> Such a good movie. Dana, get down. <laughs> okay, three stages of. The repair process. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger walks I into I wish a room. I could do that accent because it'd be so fun to describe these three stages in an Arnold Schwarzenegger voice. <laughs> you know, maybe we... The come in and kill everybody. Maybe we should get him on the show. To do a, to do a uh, you know, like a, an episode on weightlifting. Yeah, we can talk about the whole adaptive process. Yeah, you, you take your steroids. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Lots of steroids. You just stick the needle in. Oh, I've got to learn how to do accents. We could have so much for fun. You could do show. a Canadian accent pretty well. No, I can't even do that. Oh, that's you're. Yeah, I suppose you're right. Uh, it's actually made me sad when I moved back to Toronto. <laughs> Everybody was there. Was like, "Oh, you're from the states, right?" I'm like, "No, I'm Canadian." Can you hear it? I can. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody else does. <laughs> ah, the three stages of the immune repair process. Yes. The first stage is the pro-inflammatory stage, mm. and this happens pretty immediately. So you've just done a really hard training ride. You've done damage in your muscles. When you have damage, that means that you're going to have some necrosis. You're going to have some breakdown of tissues. 
So the immune system needs to come in and clear out that dead tissue. So the first cells that arrive are your macrophages that are really good at, at, at phagocytosis, which is that uh, like the look I just got from Chris. What? That, that, that <laughs> basically breaking down dead cells, breaking down dead tissue. The other cells that come in are neutrophils, and they are cytotoxic. They release chemicals that help with the macrophages to break down that, that damaged tissue. So this causes inflammation, this causes soreness, this causes weakness, this causes all the things that you think of as, I don't want these. But it's necessary. First, you have to, 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 to get rid of all that dead, damaged tissue. The second stage, which is somewhere around 36, 48 hours later, uh, is you see the macrophages basically switch phenotypes. They, they switch their role. And they now actually start promoting an anti-inflammatory environment. They said, okay, we've cleared all that dead tissue. Now we need to start the repair process. So they switch over and they, they become anti-inflammatory. They reduce the inflammation. Then the third stage is when you finally, and this is about 48 hours uh, later, is when you start seeing all the repair process. You see a rebuild of the extracellular matrix. Um, and all these things that hopefully, if you've done your training right, are going to be built back bigger, stronger, and better than you were before. It's like a, a coastal town that gets hit by a hurricane. And then crews come, come in, clean up all of the debris, sweep the – get all the sand off the streets, all that junk out of the way. And then they rebuild the houses, but they put them up on stilts or they make them stronger right. or they put build them back, quote, better. Stronger. That's actually the very close to the example I always use. I always use the example of a house. Mm -hmm. And what I tell people is, so this is the, you need to do damage and then repair. So the analogy, I, I always ask people, so if you're talking about a house and you want to build a house better and bigger, what is training? People always go, well, training is the repairman. I go, raw. Training is the storm that comes in and damages the house. Mm -hmm. And then the repairman, when you're resting, comes out and repairs the damage before the next storm. Right. And so expression I always tell my athletes is don't rip roof panels off. This is why I'm against that kind of in-between sort of hard training that feels really good. Because think of it like a repairman. If a moderate storm comes in and just rips a few roof panels off, repairman's lazy. Our immune system is lazy. It doesn't want to have to do more than, than it should. So it's going to come out, and as you said... It's going to first clear the debris. That's the inflammatory stage. But it's going to go, that storm just ripped off a few roof panels. I'll tack back on a few more roof panels, and we're going to have the exact same house we had before. Mm -hmm. So I always tell my athletes, if you want to get stronger, don't rip roof panels off. Rip the roof off. Because <laughs> the repair rad's going to come out and go, that's really bad. I don't like my roof being ripped off. So I'm not going to build back the same roof we had before. I'm going to build a better roof. Just don't burn your house down. That's burnout, yes. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, this is also why rest is very important because if you continue with the analogy, if all you are ever doing is storm after storm after storm and never give that sunshine for the, the repairman to come out and do repair, the house is just going to get beat up. And that repairman is going to do exactly what your body does, which is try – during these storms or in between these storms to just keep the house from falling over. Right. And that's burnout.
The other really important thing to point out about these three stages is the timing is critical. Mm. And you can't really influence the timing. And there are plenty of studies showing that if you delay those stages, make them take longer than they should, or even actually try to speed them up, you get fibrosis and you get scarring. Can't rush this thing. Right. It's going to take the length of time it's going to take. So a lot of the research is now saying for adaptation, the best thing to do, and I think by now we've actually played that clip from Joe Friel, he even says this, best thing to do is get out of the way. Mm -hmm. Let your body do what it wants to do in the time course that it wants to do it in. Chris and I use this analogy of training being like a storm and resting being like a repair person who comes out and fixes the damage. The art of training is figuring out how to do enough damage and balance it with the repair steps that we just described. I talked with season pro Brent Bookwalter of Mitchell and Scott, who feels that balance is the true art of training and one of the hardest balances to find. Have you ever found that when you're training really hard, you notice any sort of immune response? Uh, do you notice any sort of inflammation? Do you notice any sort of symptoms of, of being sick when you, you know you don't have a virus? Or Yeah, yeah, I think from my experience of, of applying heavy loads of training to the body, whether it be in training or in racing, is that the immune system is deeply, deeply rooted in, in that process and that response. And, you know, without a doubt, there's this breakdown and, and vulnerability that I feel like does occur, occur with the immune system. And, and often during those periods of heavy race or training load, it's like we're, I'm really riding that razor wire of being so close to being sick or falling apart but also just about in really, really good condition, really in top form. And I think the, the, the signals and signs, you know, can be confusing. I think um, if I just look at my, one of the most recent races I've done this spring in Triano Adriatico, that was the first, that was without a doubt, you know, the biggest load that I've had in my body um, up to this point in the year. And by the end of the race, it, I felt like I was almost getting sick. It was, I had, yeah, muscle soreness that was so much more intense. I was a little achy. My stomach was, I was kind of acidic and heartburny and not really working right, but didn't really feel like I was sick. And then, you know, do the travel home, get in the airport, expose myself to who knows what um, viruses and bacteria on the way home. And then the next day, I'm, you know, full blown uh, gastro bug, puking and aching and just uh, really a mess. So, I think that's a, a, a good example of it, um, and we see that see that time and time again, and it's something that needs to be definitely respected in the process. And you know, another reason to to have a coach and a pilot and someone that's going to oversee in your progression, so you can control the controllables as much as you can during those training phases. So you're saying often they go hand in hand, where you're you're coming onto really good form and you you feel those symptoms of, of being sick. Do you find there's a line? Do you know when to say, okay, I've done enough. I don't, I shouldn't do any more here. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fine line. Like I said, it is, there is a line, um, but it's, oh, it's blurry and it's vague and gray and confusing. I think, you know, most of us as athletes, we're, we're committed and we're focused and we're ambitious. And the last thing you want to do is void or stop that progression. It's almost like an addiction. You get, you get into a training cycle and you're just sort of, you know, manically just chewing through the training and looking to the next day, looking to the next day, looking to the next day. And the worst thing that I can fathom is, is stopping that progression or having a little um, hiccup or road bump. And, 
you know, if I usually, if I get a little perspective from someone outside the situation, they'll be like, well, of course, like, you know, take, rain it back a day. Let's pull it in, take a day easy. What, you're, what are you going to lose in a day? And, and logically and methodically, it makes a lot of sense. But the component of us, of an athlete that, that makes us good a lot of times is that same one that helps us um, or, you know, prohibits us from, from letting go and detaching and, and sort of stopping that. So, um, there's a line and, and finding that is a bit of the art, I guess, of training and the art of staying health and, and finding that sort of, you know, magical peak condition that we're always looking for. But you're saying there's no magical formula for finding that balance. And it's sometimes hard for athletes to, to recognize it because the nature of being a good athlete makes you want to push through it. Is that, that accurate? Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. There's, there's no, there's no magic formula and I don't believe there's any training graph number um, that can tell you that. I think, like I said, that it really is, that is the, that is sort of the art and the mastery of training and, and the pursuit of you know, performance excellence. Um, that's, that's something, you know, I've been doing this for a long time now. This is my 12th year racing as a professional and I, st- I, I still don't have this mastered. And this is something I'm, I'm doing full time every day. It's, it's part of that pursuit and that, that uh, yeah, pursuit of mastery in the training and the preparation and the execution of performance that is just something that has to be continually worked on and um, honed in as best you can. Let's get back to the show and talk about when the repair process doesn't function optimally. So it, it comes back to that, that point we made right at the start, which is that it's all about balance between recovery and repair, between adaptation and recovery, however you want to phrase it. And if you go too far in one direction, it can lead to burnout. But what about in the other direction? Is there anything you can do there? Yeah, actually, so there is. Oh, by the way, something that's really interesting here that I I forgot to mention, just that imbalance the other way. Mm -hmm. One of the things that gets out of balance, and I'm not going to go too deep into this at all, uh, but there is a balance between what are called Th1 and Th2 cells. Mm -hmm. And I think it was Th1 is responsible for dealing with allergies. So Mm. if you are doing too much training stress, if you are getting out of balance and you push the the imbalance towards TH1, this is one of the reasons why a lot of cyclists who are training really hard say, developing allergies. Yeah, yeah. And they always wonder why. And some of that's an indicator that you're, you're a little out of balance. But yes, there is... One thing that you can do that, again, relates to getting a little bit out of balance, as I mentioned, those neutrophils come in in that first stage with the macrophages, and they're cytotoxic. They release some chemicals that that help to break down the dead tissue. That's good in moderation. But if you are out of balance, if you're doing too much damage, if you're not getting enough recovery, you can have too much of an elevation of those, those neutrophils, and then you start getting what's called secondary damage. Or if you did a really, really hard training ride or really, really hard race, you get secondary damage. And right now, what I've read in the research is they're looking for, is there a purpose of that secondary damage? Generally, the conclusions are, no, you're just out of balance. That secondary damage is bad. A lot of the way the secondary damage is produced is neutrophils release reactive oxygen species. So we've all heard about oxidative damage. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a buzz term. Well, this is actually a place where it occurs. It releases two. One is superoxide dismutase, and the other one is hydrogen peroxide, and they can both be very damaging. 
this you don't want, this can be beneficial to prevent. That said, and we'll cover this later, don't start taking antioxidants. Mm -hmm. Part of the way of addressing this is training. It's a really fascinating studies where they take amateur cyclists compared to pro cyclists. And what you see with amateur cyclists is when they do really hard training, the, the Ross gets way out of balance. Mm. Uh, with pros, you see their natural antioxidant defense systems really ramp up. And what's absolutely amazing is pros, like when you take a Tour de France level pro, oxidative damage actually goes down because even though they're producing tons and tons of these oxidants, their natural antioxidant defense system ramps up even more Hmm. and you see a reduction. So this is why if you ever read a pro's training plan and go, I want to try that, don't. Mm. Because if you don't have that defense, which takes years to develop, you're just going to get a huge overdevelopment of ROS that your body can't handle. And what happens when the ROS becomes excessive, so this oxidative damage becomes excessive, it actually shuts down your immune system. Then you become immunocompromised and you can get sick. Right. If we go right back to the beginning of what we were talking about, the immune system is responsible for adaptation. So if you shut your immune system by down by training too hard, then you've done a ton of damage and you're not actually going to get any stronger you because you've just down. shut down the system that's supposed to do the adaptations. Right. And you just spiral downward instead of upward. Vicious cycle. And this is why people, when they're in burnout, they're saying, I'm training really hard, but I don't seem to be getting any stronger. And I just feel kind of flat and I'm getting sick all the time. This is what's happening. Huge buildup of this ROS, huge buildup of the secondary damage, getting immunocompromised, your body can't repair, and you're just on a downward cycle. Going back to the the pros and their uh, ability to, to cope with this, are you saying, or is the research saying that um, the amount of training that they do and have done over uh, over their careers and so many years slowly builds up a better and better yes defense system? So remember, this is what's amazing about the adaptive processes in our bodies. We adapt to almost anything. And one of the things we adapt to is oxidative stress. Mm-hmm. So if we produce oxidative stress, our bodies ramp up our natural antioxidant system. This is why I was saying you don't want to start taking antioxidants because if you take antioxidant, your body's going to go, well, why would I ramp up my natural mm-hmm. defenses? You're giving it to me exogenously. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I can't. I can't do a German accent or an Austrian accent. I also can't talk in English. <laughs> yeah, moving on. Um <laughs> That's like that's true of a lot of things, though. You right. uh, supplementation often leads to your body saying, "Meh, well, if you're going to just give it to me, then I'm right. not going to do it myself." So that analogy we were talking about. Remember, the repair band's lazy. So the repair band goes, "Well, if you're going to give it to me, why would I bother?" If you're going to repair it, you're yeah, yeah, exactly. So we want a little oxidative damage. It gets a really bad name, but actually, we want a little. ROS is actually also a signaling molecule, and it's important in that adaptive process too. If we produce a little ROS, that actually promotes the immune system to repair. So again, if you take antioxidants, that shuts down that communication signal, and you don't get it, you don't get adaptations. Mm-hmm. So be careful about taking lots and lots of antioxidants. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I, th- I I just think that this is um, so true of so many of these complex processes that are in the human body is that. 
I don't know if it's uh, media or popular, um, just something out there, some uh, trend takes it in the wrong direction. And then it takes a really long time for people to relinquish that. Like lactic acid is a bad thing or oxidation is a bad thing. It's, it's a it's part of a process or it's a byproduct or it's a, something that's naturally occurring in your body, all of these things. And yet, if it's auto, totally out of whack, then it becomes something to, 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 to pay attention to because there, it can have uh, negative repercussions. But a lot of times it's just like, no, that's supposed to happen. That's a process that's taking place in your body. Don't try to influence it because your body actually knows what it's doing. The more I've studied physiology, the more I've studied, particularly exercise physiology, the more I've learned that our bodies are, are so much more complex than any machine that we have ever designed. And so sophisticated, the best thing you can do is just let it do its thing. Mm -hmm. It is actually remarkably good at doing its thing when you try to get in the way. And there are a couple rare exceptions. There are little things that you can do to help. You know, we just talked about the secondary damage. Mm -hmm. There are things you can do to reduce that secondary damage. But for the most part, get out of the way. Let the body do its thing. Mm -hmm. And supplement industry hates to hear us say that because they want to say, you take all this and you're going to be stronger and better and everything else. And and. I just rarely see that play out. The best supplements are the are good food. Right. But we that's another episode. That, that, that is a completely <laughs> another episode. So we need inflammation and we need to do damage, but we want to avoid that vicious cycle. We talked for a bit with Colby Pierce about how to know when you're in balance and when you're going down that bad path. As he'll explain, it's not easy to quantify, but there are good signs. Is doing some damage... And fatiguing yourself important to improve, or are you just pushing burnout? Uh, yeah, in order to improve, you have to do damage. I would, I would say. Uh, that said, it's again, it's always about context of the athlete because if you have that type A chronic overtrainer who's barely above water the whole time, and then you try to add load on top of that, then the result will be too much load, and they'll get they'll either get burned out or they'll get injured or they'll get sick or they'll just the system will become unresponsive and they'll flatline they'll get to that point where they have numb legs and they're pounding themselves and nothing's happening you have to have the right relationship with the body and ask it to do things with the right load at the right time how do you with your athletes know when to say okay you've done the right amount of damage now we need to recover yeah great question that's it's so nuanced because of course we have power files and we have time and zones and we have training stress score and we have heart rate and we have all those responses that we see from training. We have the load, the power and the response and the heart rate. And then we have what's really most important in my opinion is the athlete comments. So I, I really hammer my athletes to make comments and I use training peaks as a platform. It's, it's not perfect, but it's great uh, in a lot of ways. And, and one of the best ways is that we can go back and forth on a particular day and a training file and I can ask a question and they get an email and then they get an email and respond, et cetera. And that dialogue, that back and forth is one of the most essential points because you have to have a pulse on what's happening with the athlete. So it's real simple. You just look at their comments in a binary format, you know, and a one is a positive and a zero is a negative. And the negative can be external or internal. If the negative is internal, a zero, a, a negative external would be, I had three flat tires, got bitten by a dog. Okay. Well, then we know we need to send you to look after that dog bite and make sure you don't have gangrene or whatever. But the negative internals are ooh, heavy legs, sluggish, felt tired, uh, couldn't, you know, power sucked, felt like crap, right? You get a few days of those in a row, two or three days in a row. It's like, okay, 
we got to look at this. What's going on? And then you start dissecting. So it's even in the way they describe things. Yes. Sometimes they just change the wording a bit. Yep. That's yeah. the most important part because in my view, looking at, I never, I won't say never, I almost never make decisions based solely on numbers. Numbers support the conversation. Numbers support the relationship and numbers support the relative perceived exertion of the athlete. What is power? What is heart rate? They're, they're buoys in an ocean that help us tell, tell us where the athlete actually is. What's actually happening with the athlete? Those are just two data points that help us figure out to triangulate their position in the sea, the stormy sea of training and life, right? <laughs> and, and that ocean has good days and bad days, calm days and stormy days. And, and so you have to use those numbers to help you figure it out. But the single most important metric you get from any athlete is always their perceived exertion at any given point, any given day. Legs were floating, average day, par, or where's the tree stump you attached to my bike, right? So the athlete who doesn't have a coach needs to be very aware of those sensations. Yes, we all do. And that's ultimately, that's what makes cycling. I mean, if any listeners are out there and they want to dig deeper on that and they have not read The Rider by Tim Crabbe, go get some because that book dives exactly into the essence of how a cyclist thinks, how they gauge their own effort. And it's just good reading on top of that. Okay. So on the flip side, your rider's now done some good damage. Mm -hmm. They're in that repair mode. How do you know, A, that they are going in the right direction? And B, how do you know when they are ready to get back to training? So, well, again, that's when I hammer them with an opportunity to maximize recovery modalities, right? Because you've got that damage. You want a hormetic response to exercise load to a degree, but then there's a point when you need, when the body sort of has momentum like a train and it just sort of keeps going, right? And you have to stop the train. So we do that with our various different recovery modalities. So I, I invite them to use those. And then um, one of the ways that I've been using is actually HRV. That's a great recovery score is a perfect way to look into that. It's one of the few windows we have into how recovered the central nervous system is. And because that is influenced by the global stress level of the cyclist, then it's a good insight into, it's one of the ways, one of the few ways we can quantify that. So I'm pretty happy about that technology. But for athletes who don't have access to HRV or aren't using it, then you're reliant a little bit on their subjective sensations. Uh, you're reliant on their feelings of sluggishness versus not. And then you can see it in their numbers, too. You know, if you're looking closely at their power files, you have them do a few test efforts. You can see when things get sparky. Um, and one of the clearest ways was, OK, so the cycling version of a keyboard tap test. You want to do a simple central nervous system test? Time how many times someone can push a single letter on a keyboard in one minute. And when they're tired, they'll get a given number. And when they're awake and their body is responsive, they can type many more letter L's. Right. Right. So what's the cycling equivalent of that? It's a five second sprint. Just have somebody rip a, a five second sprint as fast as they can. Have them do two or three of them. Look at the peak power. It's pretty simple. And you just tell them to go for it. And when they're fatigued, their five second power will suck. <laughs> yes. And when they get fresher, it just goes up and up and up. So that's one little trick we can use to help see how recovered someone is. I do right. something similar where when an athlete's in a recovery week and they're starting mm -hmm. to come out of it, I'll have them do a couple easy rides. But the first structured ride won't be intervals. I'll have them do neuromuscular work. Yeah. And sometimes yeah. they'll say, oh, I think I'm fine. I'm ready to go. They'll do the neuromuscular work. And it's. Yeah. And it sucks. <laughs> and they go, no, you're not recovered. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> you need some more sleep. Yeah. Let's get back to the show and talk with our primary guest, George Bennett. So we're going to talk a little bit about those few things that you can do and a lot of those things you can't do, but maybe this is a good time to bring in George. Yeah. Yeah, we uh, we sat down with George Bennett. Um, he had just come off the Tour de France, had 
an exceptional ride there. At one point was sitting in fourth place overall, uh, working for his teammate, Stevie Kreuswick, who ended up third. Uh, George, you know, had a few incidents in the, in the last week of the race, had some crashes. I think he actually got a little bit sick. He might mention that in the interview. Um, but yeah, we were talking to him as he was coming off one grand tour and leading straight into the Vuelta. So oh, no, he was going to another stage race. Right. And then going to the Vuelta. Yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, you know, something normal humans don't want to do. Yeah, this is for professionals only. <laughs> yeah, that's building a lot of Ross. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's put in exactly. Those terms. So it was a great, in a, in a sense, you know, it was a great time to talk about him because he was really walking this tightrope, coming off one grand tour, building for the another, another one. How much does he need to recover? How much did he come out of that tour adapting from the hit that he just took? How much did he need to do to prepare for the Vuelta. So it was a really interesting time in his in his uh, season. So you, th- you think you'd be ready? Ready to go for the Vuelta? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it's really hard to tell, you know, like you, it could go either way. You, I mean, like you've just done the, the hardest three-week training you could do. You could be absolutely flying or your body's just so punished that you could just creep. So I think the next... Two weeks are pretty crucial, but um, I'm optimistic. I think I can. I think I can be ready. Have you ever done this combination before? Yep. Yeah, I have, and I've done it twice actually. And um, the first time it worked really well for me. I was ended up tenth in the Vuelta. First time I was in the top ten in a Grand Tour. I even wow. I did the Tour. The next weekend I did San Sebastian, and the next weekend I did Olympics. I came home from Rio, did two training rides, went to the Vuelta, and, and then I was tenth. And I was like, wow, that was amazing. And then the, the next year, yeah, that is pretty amazing. Yeah, but, but then the next year, I was like, right, I'll do the similar thing. Went to the tour, had a great tour until about three days to go, and I got super sick, didn't finish. And then I was just so crook and uh, tried to go to the Vuelta. Went home after about four or five days. I just got a screenshot from my director when I got onto the bus. So it was just a screenshot of flights back to Drona. <laughs> so uh, he was like right time to go home so they, they sort of sent me home because I was just creeping mm. and uh, so that didn't work out well for me at all so, so I've done it twice and yeah I'm hoping I can replicate the first time absolutely uh, well I'm, I'm glad we have you on an episode where we're going to be talking about the importance of rest because you seem to do none of it <laughs> <laughs> I'm learning fast <laughs> so fresh off of the tour and prepping for the Vuelta. The the fun never ends for George Bennett. Welcome to the show, George. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, exactly. Straight back into it. Yeah, and uh, it's it's great that uh, we have you on the show to talk about rest and recovery and adaptation because as a pro, you've got to find ways to make this happen. There's a lot of things that we want to talk about today where you can get off track and, and hurt yourself by doing the wrong thing. And in some of this stuff, is, it seems counterintuitive. So broadly, what what are the things that you actually try to avoid in terms of getting the, the best out of the adaptation process? Yeah, like you say, it's a, it's, rest is one of the most essential things for us. And especially at a, a time like now, you know, I've just done the tour and I've got the Vuelta coming up and you're sort of working walking the tightrope between recovering from the tour which doesn't happen in a week and and then maintaining the the fitness for the welter and so there's a lot of a lot of things that go into sort of balancing that yeah touching on the the recovery i guess that you 
there's a lot of things you would do in a race that you wouldn't do in training because in a race, you, your focus is the next day. You just want to be good the next day. And there's there's no sort of, you don't have an eye on a goal to, to sort of improve your performance by a certain time. You just want to suffer less the next day and arrive a little bit fresher and a little bit better than everybody else. So you're kind of trying to limit the damage. And, and by limiting the damage, I guess we'll call it damage or, or stimulus, yeah, you do limit the, the stimulus and you, you make less adaptions at a cellular level. And so I guess in training, the, the, the whole idea of training is to get the maximum amount of adaptations out of your training. And so you won't get home from training, for example, and do an ice bath because which there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that, uh, and it is only anecdotal, I guess, um, that that works in, in, in racing to make you feel better the next day. And the same with taking things like antioxidants, which will lower the stress. They will also inhibit... Um, you know, mitochondrial adaptations, which kind of just takes away the point of training. The, the main focus for me is to, to get home and, and, and nutrition is the, the biggest thing I think you can do for recovery. Um, and then when you get into races, you know, you bring in a lot of other little things. So you're really talking here about the, the fact, and, and we addressed this before we brought you on, that there's a difference between recovery or focusing on recovery and focusing on adaptations. So from that practical standpoint, you've already talked about in a race, you, you might take some antioxidants, you might take an ice bath. That's not the sort of things you would do uh, to maximize adaptations. No. What, are some of the, so what are some of those things that you do to, to aid the adaptations? Is it just get out of the way and don't take anything? Or you, you mentioned nutrition. What do you do in your nutrition? I mean, there's a number of things. I mean, one of the, the main things, I mean, away from nutrition, is you're looking at, at for example, heat in a race. In a hot race, we get in and we have, you know, ice gel straight away, internal cooling. We put an ice vest on if we we're on the rollers. We get in the bus, have a cold shower. It's all about getting the core temperature down. Whereas in training, you know, you want that heat, adapt heat adaptation. I mean, there's a lot of evidence to say that heat adaptation is more effective than altitude training. There's even, I mean, I don't personally do this, but there's, there's uh, I know guys that will get in from training and even have a hot bath or a sauna or something which, you know, can make you feel rubbish the next day, but it does give you a massive, it's a massive stimulus for your body to, to make those changes. Uh, in terms of nutrition, I guess I approach pretty, pretty you know, from race from race day and from training, uh, I, I approach them pretty pretty much the same. I mean, the, the first thing you do is I get in the door and I use it as an excuse to, to smash a block of chocolate and a, and a bag of Haribo's to just uh, get the quick <laughs> sugars in. I think that's... Uh, a lot of guys do that, and I guess it comes in different forms. And in a race, you know, there's a recovery shake that's sort of customized with the right ratios and the, the right amounts per rider per weight. Whereas at home, I'm a little bit more relaxed about things and I just smash what I like. Um, and then obviously, you know, protein's pretty key, uh, and then a, a big carb meal. But you know, again, it is slightly different. I mean, in a race, you might do low salt, for example. Um, if you if it's not super hot, because there's some people find they swell up if they have a lot of salt if they've been eating gels and bars all day and drink mix which does have a lot of salt in it. Whereas in training you're eating uh, banana cake and and bocadillos in Spain. So so what else do you do to promote adaptation? And let's actually kind of there's two sides to adaptations. Obviously first you need a stimulus from which to adapt. You're you're not going to adapt if you're just sitting there on the couch. So when you're going out and doing your training, 
how do you know when I've done enough damage that I'm going to get an adaptation out of this? What are the things that you look for? And what are also the clues that, boy, I've done too much now? There's no, there's, there's not a sign I have where I think, okay, now I've done enough. But I, you just look at the workload that you're doing. You say, yeah, this is, this is, you know, if I'm doing a 30-hour week and pushing hard uphills. I mean, it's a lot easier to know when you've gone the other way, when you've done too much and you just get this sour feeling in your legs and you're lactic every time you stand up and you're struggling to get out of bed in the morning. I mean, that's when you know you've done too much. I mean, there's there's sort of some vital signs also you can look at, your heart rate, if it's elevated in the morning and not going up on the bike. Um, they're all your key signs. But yeah, it's not, I, I guess, training. I, I, I train quite differently, I guess, to a lot of guys. But I look for the stimulus being... A massive endurance stimulus so by doing long hours and then try and do as much altitude as possible and doing not necessarily intervals but but riding hard up high because you know that gives a massive stimulus for your body to you know it thinks what the hell is this there's not enough oxygen going on i need to forces it forces some adaption and same with the heat you know if you can ride in the heat it doesn't feel great but it does force your body to make those changes and then you also have to allow your body to facilitate the changes by feeding it enough and letting it recover enough because there's no good having the stimulus. You can put all the stimulus you like, but if you don't allow your body the resources or the time to, to make those adaptions, then you know, you've just suffered for nothing. How much does mood play a part in where you are on that balance between overreaching and fully overtraining? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm pretty fortunate in the fact that I, I love riding my bike. You know, I, I genuinely enjoy going out for a ride, especially long rides, and um, I'm fortunate enough to live either, you know, in Andorra where it's it's just beautiful training, same with Girona and same in New Zealand. So I think if I was in Belgium or, you know, I, I would somewhere, you know, in a, where it's hard to get out, I think, yeah, I would, I, I think there would be a huge factor where how you are day to day. But, you know, I just had a week off after the tour and I was really sick and everything like that, but I was still looking forward to, to going out for a long ride. When you are training or when you're in training mode and you're really trying to build, is there is it just I'm training hard all the time or are you trying to do a certain amount of work and then say, okay, now it's time to take a couple of days rest, let all that adaptation happen, and then I'm going to hit again? Or is it just constant, constant training? No, no, I definitely uh, – I make myself do do really big works. You know, it might be a block of sort of two, three. Like, I mean, I'm a guy that doesn't race so much. I can train myself really, really well into form. Like, I didn't race between California and the tour. So, you know, after Cali, I really had some time off. And then I got stuck into some work, uh, some endurance stuff, and came to Andorra and did a really big shift. It pulled some couple of really big weeks. And then, but I wasn't doing intervals. I was just riding. And then, you know, it sort of got closer to the tour and I, I did start need to do some specific stuff, not high intensity, but just, you know, maybe some strength work and things like that. And before I did that, I needed to feel good. So I, I took two, three days really easy, let the endurance kind of soak in, um, and then started the next block where I, where I did sort of specific stuff, where I, was, I went into it a bit fresher. And then again, after that, I only did one intensity session before the tour. But before that intensity session, I had three days really easy. So I almost tapered for the intensity session so I could get the most out of that one session. So on those couple days when you're you're resting, what are you focusing on? What are you doing during those couple days? To be honest, I'm, I'm looking after a um, bit of mental health. I'm not really worrying too much about riding my bike. I mean, I do, I do make a conscious effort 
like before the tour, if it's a really important race, to, to stay off my feet because I do, that does seem to give me this really bad, heavy sensation in my legs if I've been standing up and running around. Monday I had a nice rest day in Andorra and the rest day for me was, was down at the mountain bike park doing shuttle runs on the mountain bike and, you know, we went for lunch and, and just, just try and break up the monotony. Not that it is, you know, super monotonous, monotonous but it, it does... It, it does have a long-term effect where if you, you live like a month, a monk for months on end, it can catch up with you. So you do try and uh, you don't just want to be in the bed all day sort of in a dark room and watching bike racing or anything like that because uh, by the end of the day, you start feeling a bit shady. So it sounds like during those couple of days when you're just letting it settle in, when you're letting it adapt, it's mostly just get out of the way, let your, let your body do its thing. It doesn't. You haven't really brought up any big techniques to recover in terms of things i focus on there's there's nothing i mean i do make sure you do need to look at nutrition on those days and obviously there are great days to do to do the you know i still go through a routine in terms of a bit of stretching um i always chuck the normal tech boots on actually but i do that after every every stay every training day as well um like today i just went out on the tt bike come home had lunch put the boots on watch a bit of racing and uh or whatever's on. The last for the tour, it was the Cricket World Cup. That was every day. But uh, you know, in rest days, I think you need to make sure you you eat enough because there's a tendency for cyclists to think, "Oh, I'm not training today," and they they eat a salad for lunch and a salad for dinner, and they don't really recover. So I think that that's a key factor. And I I, I like riding my bike on the day off because as much as there's uh, there's this active recovery, and there's pros and cons of that, but I think. More than anything, it's about getting out and enjoying a nice day and an easy ride with friends, stop for a coffee, and just enjoy the fact that you, someone's paying you to ride your bike on a, on a rest day the same as they did the day before when you suffered for six hours doing intervals. So i got to ask, did you just say cricket? Cricket, <laughs> yeah. Yes. That, that'll help anybody like the, recover uh, by putting them to sleep. It's a civilized form of baseball. The skilled yeah. form of baseball. Okay. So th- this is how Canadian am I, I am. I was on my high school cricket team. Really? Yes. We, we actually play it in Canada. Were you a batter or a bowler? Uh, I was a batter. I had this big, heavy wow. bat that I, I actually, before I got into cycling, I, I was much heavier. And so I had this big, heavy bat that, that nobody else on my team could really use. And, and I could just wail the sixes. And, and that, that was all I was good for. What were they bowling at you in Canada? Medium, medium yeah, I mean, pace. We all wide. sucked. So basically, the reason I could hit sixes <laughs> was just because it was brute force. None of us had any skill whatsoever. So it was fun. And basically, everybody listening to this podcast is just like, "What the hell are you talking about?" This is true. Even the guy sitting in the same room with you, Trevor. You gotta love a sport where they have a position that's actually called silly. Yeah, sums it, sums it up. Silly yeah. it off. You brought up Norm Attack. And so, you know, we have said from the outset, they, they are sponsoring this episode, but we brought them on because as we're showing with the science, uh, the one thing that really has been proven time and time again to help with, with recovery um, is compression. You know, that's one of the big things. But right now we're talking about adaptation. Yes. And that was the question we were going to ask you. Are the Normatec something that you just use in a race to help you recover day to day, or do you find... There's there's an adaptive benefit. No, like I, I I put something like Normatec um, in the same category as massage. It, it's not an inhibitor of a stimulus. It just allows you to go good the next day. 
it's not that you lessen training effects by by using it, but uh, like like I often have a lot of trouble with um, like swelling up my legs if, when I'm damaged. They, they really bloat with water and things like that, and uh, you know that is one one effect. But but you know it's the same with with massage. I mean I get a massage daily in training uh, at training camps. We always have a masseuse, and that's that's largely to to help with um, injury prevention is one thing, but also just you know getting getting your muscles flushing your legs out because you do build up a lot of I guess the evidence is is shaky in terms of it's very hard to conduct a, an experiment where you can say look you have less sort of toxins or, or whatever in your in your legs after using the Normatec or, or having a massage or something. But it, you, I have to go with anecdotal evidence, and and I always feel a lot better after being on the boots or or having a massage or, you know, just a, a good flush out. But like I say, it's not a it's not an inhibitor of a stimulus like say uh, taking a few thousand milligrams of vitamin C might be. So actually, uh, it's great that you brought that up. We were actually talking about this before we brought you on, on the show. When you when you're looking at that adaptive process. The first stage is where you actually have an inflammatory response and your immune system comes in and clears out all the dead tissue. Uh, there's a particular type of immune cell that, that gets involved called neutrophils that right now even the research is saying it's questionable the, that how important a role the neutrophils play. And when you have too many of them, you get a, an over-inflammatory response and the neutrophils actually cause damage that's unnecessary. And there have been some very recent studies with massage and compression showing that they change that inflammatory profile and they might actually reduce that unnecessary secondary damage and that reduce those, those neutrophils. So there actually is now right. okay. um, some true evidence for, for what you're, you're, you're saying might just be added. Right, okay, yeah, okay. So it's, I guess I'm not keeping fully up to speed with the latest. You know, I, I sort of go on a, on a policy of what works for me, what feels good and things like that. But um, I do have a lot of trouble especially in grand tours where i just gain huge amounts of weight and it's it's impossible for it to be fat because it, it just doesn't add up you know you're not eating 7000 calories extra <laughs> a week than you than you're putting out um to gain 3 kilos so um yeah it's it is a um a, a tool i use a lot that that does go a long way to helping me and i, I wonder if it is like you say that if it, if it could be um sort of stopping this overload of, of caused by these rogue neutrophils. <laughs> well, so if you have a huge inflammatory response, often you, you, you can't have a, a fluid buildup. So that's fascinating. When you say you're doing the tour, you're, you're putting on weight. And it's, as you said, it's obviously probably all or, or mostly water. How much weight do you put on over the course? Well, um, in my first Giro and in the welter last year, actually, like, that might have been my record, I started, I think I was about four kilos heavy at the end um, of the world. So that's, you know, that's crazy. I mean, my numbers, I, I was creeping by the last week. I started off great, um, but I had a really bad last sort of eight days. And I think a lot of that was from weight gain um, because, you, you know, you do the math. If you're doing six watts a kilo, you then have to chuck out another 24 watts. If you're four kilos heavy, I mean, 24 watts is massive. You train a lifetime. To get 24 watts on your on your threshold, or and uh, so yeah, it's it's big. But uh, actually, in the tour this year, we, it was a lot more manageable. I almost didn't gain weight at all. Um, well, I mean, there was days I was up and down, but overall, 
you know, we, we were using the boots and things like that. And that on the, you know, we would, on transfers, we would use the boots and, and every night I would use the boots before bed. And, um, yeah, I think that helped a lot. How much time on average are you using the boots at a, at a race like the tour and then in, in training? Because I also have a massage, I'm doing about 30 minutes a day. In training, I can go up to an hour, depending if I fall asleep. Yeah, sounds about right. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually, staying at Chris's place, I've seen Chris basically do that. Puts yeah. the boots on, turns on the TV and just falls asleep. Yeah. See, I, I put the boots on and then I sit there and read about neutrophils and TH17 and all <laughs> oh, these boy. things that nobody else in the world wants to hear about. <laughs> right, yeah. No, we, I, I don't delve into the, uh, what was it, TH7? But, uh, TH17, which oh, actually isn't related to this. I, I just, uh, I always bring that one up because that was uh, the, the focus of my uh, my thesis. So it just is always at the back of my head. But <laughs> in this case, we're talking about neutrophils. We're talking about macrophages. We're talking about IL-6, and please tell me to shut up. Right. <laughs> shut up, please. <laughs> but no, I, I, I have seen what you're talking about, which is when I do a big training block, I will notice by the end of that block, I actually really struggle to get my shoes on. I get so much swelling. It's the same thing. I, I put on the weight, and I have noticed during those big training blocks, if I'm pretty religious and, and use the boots every day, I get less of that edema in my feet, and that's sounds like that's what you're experiencing at a, at a much higher level. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a number of, I guess, causes for it. I mean, it can even be um, like if I do a low-carb training and, and push it a bit hard and hunger bonk, the next day I can often be heavier. Um, I guess it's some kind of massive stress response from your body where it's sort of survival going, hold on, there's not enough food or there's not enough water going around. And when you do get it, it's sort of, I guess the water at least, or, or or it could be, you know, obviously inflammation because you've just damaged the cells and haven't given yourself the the necessary um, nutrition to to repair them, and, and it's just. Um, but yeah, I do notice when I when I've pushed it a bit far on on low carb or something like that, I, I do get a response that is a bit heavier. Whereas when I take a few days easy, I often return to normal weight. If you know th- this is what I was sort of experiencing last year, but yeah, like you say with the boots. Um, I guess it just it it helps flush all that all that stuff out and and it's been far better this year. So we just heard from George about how for him the Normatex are helping him flush out his legs, get that stuff, all that um waste material out of his legs. Are there other things that uh you can do to aid in this this process and yeah Tell us, Trevor, what about Normatex? Are they doing what um, they're supposed to be doing? So maybe before we go to what works, mm-hmm. quickly touch on what doesn't work. Okay, yeah. So we were talking about the, uh, the the three steps and how you don't, you know, that is inflammatory, that inflammation is necessary for adaptations and muscle repair. And you mostly want to get out of the way of that process. You don't want to do anything that reduces inflammation. Mm-hmm. And again, this is where recovery and adaptation can be a little bit different because if you're trying to recover for the next day, you don't want to be sore. You don't want to have five extra pounds of water in your legs or whatever it is and mm-hmm. your feet unable to fit in your shoes. Mm-hmm. So that's where you say, I'm going to reduce the inflammation. I don't care that my adaptations aren't going to be as good. I care about the results tomorrow. Right. You sacrifice a bit on the adaptation side to improve performance because of recovery right. in between stages or, or what may, what, whatever the case may be. Right. 
So that's recovery. And in recovery, yes, sometimes reducing inflammation is good. But when we're talking about adaptations, you don't want anything that reduces inflammation. So icing, taking anti-inflammatory medication, these are the things you want to avoid. Yes, they might make you feel a little bit better, but you're going to be weaker for it. And there is evidence, there is research to show that. Mm -hmm. So the question is, what we're saying mostly just get out of the way to let your body do its thing. Is there anything that's beneficial? And where we can jump back to is we were talking about that secondary damage. Mm. Uh, the one thing that seems to have no benefit uh, is when neutrophils go overboard, you get a lot of secondary damage, and then your body also has to repair that. And that's not adaptive damage. Mm -hmm. There are things that can help that. The other thing is making sure you have the right inflammatory profile. There's a lot of what are called cytokines that are involved in the whole inflammation inflammatory process. Some are more damaging and inflammatory than others. Some actually promote repair and, and, and reduce, ultimately, inflammation in a good way. They spent years studying massage. Mm -hmm. I kept saying it doesn't benefit. But what they were doing with massage was trying to see if we give you a massage and then you do a time trial the next day if you're strong, if you're faster. Yeah, it was, it was, they were looking at performance and not right. adaptate or not recovery. And then they started looking at does massage help with DOMS? Mm -hmm. uh, but going back to some of that research I talked about at the beginning of this episode, that some of this recovery process might be central, uh, then really massage isn't going to help you very much. Sure. Uh, there's been some really cool studies recently where they looked at massage and inflammation, the inflammatory, its effect on the inflammatory profile. They looked at massage and its, its effect on this whole repair process. And that's been expanded to, so massage is part of a, a series of tools called compression. Mm -hmm. So massage is part of that. So are the Normatex. Anything that basically puts, literally what it says, it compresses the muscles. Foam rolling? foam rolling count as, as well. And what they are finding more and more is both in aiding with recovery. There's several, there's a lot of things that can help you get ready for the next day. Mm -hmm. Compression is one of them, but there's other things, like we said, that can help with recovery. But when you're talking about adaptation, the only thing that they've really seen that helps is compression. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, again, without diving into the different types of cytokines, they hmm. found it alters the cytokine profile. And that seems to, A, aid these stages, B, reduce a lot of that secondary damage that we were talking about. It also seems to help reduce the secondary damage by, uh, so the, I'm looking right at this one study that says, uh, benefits of compression include decreasing the potential space available for swelling by creating an external pressure gradient and thus reducing secondary inflammation. So you need that space to cause all that inflammation and cause that damage. Mm. So if you reduce that space, then you're, you're still going to see a lot of that repair process, a lot of the inflammation that's needed uh, to, to go through these three stages, but there effectively isn't the room mm. to do a lot of extra secondary damage. Mm -hmm. uh, also aiding blood flow, uh, which you see with compression, because after you... you, you do a really hard training ride or you do a race, you can get blood pooling in your legs. Right. Uh, you need both the, the blood to be flowing both to get all that damaged tissue material out, to 
clear it out. Mm-hmm. Also to help the the flow of the or to help immune cells get to the, right. the damage, and that again is something that compression really helps with. Helps helps uh, move the conveyor belt in both directions. Get stuff out that's not wanted and get stuff in that is wanted. Right. So this is a case where you're not hindering the inflammation. You're not hindering the process. Compression seems to actually aid, yeah. uh, aid this, the, these stages. So you know, we said get out of the way of your body, but if there is a way to help the body do what it's going to do, then that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. And that's what compression does. And this is, uh, I think I've said this in a previous episode, I had to eat a lot of crow on this because... What does that mean? Eating crow? I mean, I know what it means, but where did that phrase come from? I have no idea. That's a really good question. <laughs> We'll Google that after the show. We'll have to look that one up. That's really cool. That's a good question. (laughs) So I eat a lot of crow because I, I, 10 years ago, had read a lot of the previous research on on recovery. And my opinion at the time was uh, compression. It's kind of useless. And I will tell you, most of the compression socks that cost 30 bucks are kind of useless. Right. They just aren't tight tight enough. enough. If you're going to use compression socks, they need to a hurt like hell. B, you need to have, they need to be so tight that it takes a couple of you to put them on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so if you want to avoid that, again, th- that's why we've kind of gravitated towards companies like Normatec because they're creating something that is. Even though I used to say compression is bad for you, it's completely. I've completely flipped my opinion. That's really the one thing that could help you. Massage is great, but we can't all afford massage and get a massage every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so this is kind of next best thing you can carry with you and get every day. Right. So we've talked a lot about things you can do to hurt or to help adaptations. However, we still need to address the question of how do you know you've done enough damage so you're not just ripping off roof panels? To answer that question, we caught up with Paolo Saldana, a top Canadian coach and physiologist at McGill University. He had a lot of great advice, but we do have to give one big warning. The Michael refers to as his athlete, Michael Woods, who is a podium finisher at Worlds and a Grand Tour rider. He describes Michael's routine, which is fine for someone who does three-week stage races, but it would put most of us in the burnout box. How do you know when you've A, done enough damage and B, done the right type of damage to say, now if I rest, um, I'm going to get that adaptation, I'm going to get that bump? That's a really good question, and it's one that I don't think anybody has a complete answer for. And there's a lot of markers that one can look at to look at muscle damage, but, you know, it's not always a practical thing to do on a regular basis. So what, what I think is important for coaches to understand is that there's a lot of trial and error that goes on with stimulating yourself as an, uh, stimulating athletes and even yourself as an athlete, uh, to see what causes the greatest amount of stimulus with the most appropriate amount of recovery, with the greatest amount of rebound. You know, and and I'll give you an example. When I was first working with Mike, I took a more conservative approach in the very beginning, even though we were very quality-based. I said, okay, what we're going to do, because we want to try and have your peripheral system adapt to the cycling movement, the muscular system needs to become, you know, used to it. We're going to play with a rotating process of stimulation. So what we're going to do is we're going to do an intensity-based session that's very high in intensity, very high. And then we're going to see, based on your perception, 
based on your ability to ride again and do a little bit of effort the next day or two when you feel recovered. And it's all about those subjective measures because there are many different markers in physiology that you can look at. But subjectively, to me, that's what really counts. You know, um, so with a guy like Mike, what we would do is we would we would do uh, an intensity day and then an easy day and then an, and then a, uh, an aerobic day and then another intensity day. And we went through that pattern. But what I realized was that it's not enough stimulus after a, a few weeks of that. It's not enough stimulus. So then we said, OK, now we're going to give you one less day in between. And we tried that pattern a little bit. And that ended up being a little bit harder. And then we said, okay, now I'm going to glue back-to-back intensity days together. And I got to the point where I was actually able to glue a triple intensity day pattern with Mike. So I would do one day intensity, one day recovery, two days intensity, one day recovery, three days intensity, three days recovery. So that process is what I call hyperstimulation. We know that we're, um, that we're impacting all these changes in the... We're, we're causing muscles to, to break down. We're stressing the system significantly. And the only question was, is how, how do we know how much to give? And the only way I found that out is trial and error. It's through the progressive introduction of these, these training sessions that really led me to understand that this athlete can handle this. And I know that he's recovering because he's more than able to perform on a fairly regular basis in training. And it's shown up in his racing. Now, when he goes to a race, there's many races that he's told me, Paulo, he said, that was nothing. That was way easier than those two sessions we did the other day, that race. So, and, and the other pieces, I mean, I'm not going too much into the detail of the problem with, with introducing muscle damage, but I will say that I think athletes should be careful. Uh, I know a lot of them, um, you know, there's some interesting ideas out there, but I think a lot of athletes do take uh, a sort of antioxidants. Yep. And, you know, there's a lot of oxidative damage that goes on um, in, 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 in the system when you actually stimulate it to that level. And my question to you guys is, why is that bad? In fact, genetics dictates that we, we adapt to damage. We adapt to damage by making ourselves better, whether it's layering more fibers, whether it's, uh, you know, increasing the uh, neurotransmitters. Uh, for a particular type of fiber that's that's more power based or ox- uh, more glycolytically based rather than more oxidatively based. So there's a lot of different things that 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 we stimulate when we're overstimulating a muscle. And when athletes take antioxidants, my question is: Are you are you are you mitigating to a degree some of the stimulus that you're trying to get? Are you buffering your body's capacity to make itself better by doing that? Well, part of the adaptation is that our bodies build their own antioxidants. I actually just read a fascinating study where they looked at oxidative stress in uh, elite cyclists versus recreational and showed that in elite cyclists, when they were training hard, the, the, the net balance between oxidative stress and natural antioxidants uh, improved when they trained hard. It, it didn't get Which worse. Is- yeah, which is, you know, things like uh, superoxide dismutase, I, you know, they're, they're, they're highly damaging in there. And so for sure, that's one of, the, one of the reasons I mentioned, you know, do you want athletes taking antioxidants if what you're trying to do is induce cellular changes that are res- a response to the damage you've created? You know, and if your body's natural capacity is to do that by itself, are you, are you hurting it by 
trying to add elements to combat that that damage. Do you understand what I'm saying? I agree with you completely. Your body is not going to produce adaptations in its own antioxidant uh, defense system if you're providing it with exogenous sources. Exactly. It's 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 like the old days when they used to do, um, I guess, testosterone 25 years ago when it was a big drug in, in, in professional cycling. You basically drain your body's ability to produce your own when you take exogenous sources. It's the same thing with other stuff. So, you know, the whole package is so important when it comes to uh, exercise immunity and and, and, you know, I work with Nigel uh, from, uh, from the EF Draypack team uh, on Mike a lot, and he, he comes up with some great strategies. And he also is a really important piece of the nutritional element of how Mike did Worlds uh, this last year and will continue to be so in the future. Let's get back to my favorite part, the one minutes. All right, Trevor, you know what time it is? One minutes? Time for your one minutes, and I'm going to let you go first. You realize we forgot to ask George to do one minute for this episode. Well, I know. That's because you're now you're going to go first and you're going to go third. And at, when you go third, you're going to do it with a New Zealand accent in the body of a 110-pound Grand Tour rider. Did you just hear my Austrian accent? <laughs> I don't even know what a New Zealand accent sounds like. It's not Australian and it's not British. Yeah, you're going to do that. <laughs> I, I'm going to give it to you in, in Canadian English and then you can... Do All right, we'll, we'll put the filter. We'll put the Kiwi filter um, in post okay. on, uh, on the voice and there see how go. it comes out. All right, 60 seconds. Ready, set, go. So my 60 second is inflammation, the right type of inflammation is good. That is a, a reversal of the way we used to think, and it's a really important way to think about things. So you don't want to keep doing these things after your training rides that reduce inflammation because you're just hurting your adaptive process. For the most part, as we talked about, our bodies are amazing at this whole process. So get out of the way. There's a couple things. We talked about compression that can aid it, but you want to aid the body in what it's doing. You don't want to fight the body of what it's doing. The last point that I'm going to make with all this is there is a balance here. And if you get out of balance in that damage side without enough time for the repair process, you get in this vicious cycle where you start causing lots of secondary damage. You start overproducing ROS. ROS then shuts down your immune system. Your immune system is what handles the repair process. So now you can't repair that damage and you're just doing more damage, more ROS, and you burn out. So training, as we've always been talking about, is about finding that balance between stress and recovery. That's how you adapt. Chris? Well, I would reiterate something I said in the episode. I think uh, it's important enough to state a couple times, and that is your body does things for a reason, and it knows what it's doing, so to speak. So I think that before you start popping pills or doing interesting things uh, to try to aid this and aid that after the after a long training ride or after a race, you should uh, take a step back and say, well, my body really does know how to take care of itself if I get out of the way. So maybe I shouldn't be doing that. Maybe I should instead be letting it uh, run its course. And with the information in this episode, of course, you know what process is taking place and you know now uh, what you shouldn't do, what 
few things you can do to um, supplement what your body's already naturally doing. And I think you'll be better off for having done it that way than if you just start throwing everything at it that, you know, some brand out there tells you you should be doing. Like it. <laughs> so now George's? George. All right. Go go ahead, George. Uh, You're I'm on the gonna, clock. I got to try that. <laughs> So I'm certain George's one minute here is on July 12th when he was sitting fourth at the Tour de France. Mm -hmm. Chris and I went and time trialed a climb called Superman here in Boulder, which mm -hmm. is a Category 2 climb. Mm -hmm. And we both beat George. Yeah. So I'm certain George's one minute is as strong as he is, boy, he wishes he was like us. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> and we are going to ignore the fact his, he had his heart rate. He, he, yes, he averaged a 138 heart rate up that climb, but we know for certain his max heart rate is 140. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> it wasn't that he was going easy. <laughs> yeah. What, what do you think? Was that Would that be his one minute? Um, yeah, probably. I think you're okay, right. you want to add to that? <laughs> Something useful? <laughs> I think that George would say... Hmm, what would George say? Two Grand Tours in a year is really hard to do. Especially with the stage race in between. Especially with racing in between. But it can be done if, I don't know what, <laughs> if you get lucky. No, if you take, uh, look, in the episode, he's done it multiple times. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. This is all garbage. I think uh, he wouldn't say any of this, so we should cut all of this out. <laughs> Well, I think what he would say to this is that balance that we were talking about gets really tricky. Yeah. And even at a, a guy at his level, as he said, sometimes it works and he gets 10th at the Volta. Other times he doesn't even finish. Yeah. It's a and fine line. That's how easy it is to get out of that balance. And once you get in that vicious cycle, you're done. Mm-hmm. Yep. That was another episode of Fast Talk. As always, we love your feedback. Email us at fasttalk at bellanews.com. Subscribe to Fast Talk on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Be sure to leave us a rating and a comment. Become a fan of Fast Talk on Facebook at facebook.com slash news and on Twitter at twitter.com slash news. Fast Talk is a joint production between News and Connor Coaching. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. For George Bennett, Joe Friel, Brent Bookwalter, Colbert Pierce, Paolo Sadana, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.